Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC and more than 20 other coins. Download the Crypto.com app now to find out how much you could be earning. Today's topic is the potentially brewing fight over self-custody and privacy in the crypto space. Here to discuss are Jake Chervinsky, General Counsel at Compound Labs, and Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association. Welcome, Jake and Kristen. Hi, Laura. Laura. Thanks for having us. So the topic for today's discussion stems back to, or or rather the inspiration for this episode stems back to a tweet storm by Jake last month in which he said that because crypto has matured, there's now new anti-money laundering regulations that could be coming to crypto. And that could happen potentially in a way that infringes on users' ability to custody their own digital assets and transact privately. So this is just the background. But before we actually dive into the meat of today's topic, I really think we need to define some basic terms for people so they understand kind of how this all works and why some of these technical terms are important. So let's just start with the definition of a self-hosted wallet and how it's used and then how that differs from a hosted wallet. Uh, Sure. So I can take that. Um, A self-hosted wallet, I think the best way to think about it is it's just a default Bitcoin or cryptocurrency address. So what it means is the user of a cryptocurrency has their own private key. They are able to control their own assets. They decide whether to send uh, or hold their assets in their own wallet. A custodial or a hosted wallet, on the other hand, is when a person's private key is managed by a trusted third party like an exchange or a custodian, where the user who actually owns those digital assets, that Bitcoin or some other uh, crypto asset, has to rely on that third party in order to send or, you know, uh, get back their assets uh, whenever they want them. So they're relying on a trusted third party. I I would also add that people in government will refer to self-hosted wallets as unhosted wallets. We just prefer the term self-hosted wallet. Oh, interesting. And some good examples of self-hosted wallets would be, for instance, like maybe a Ledger or a MetaMask or a Blockchain.com wallet, whereas a hosted wallet would be using, for instance, something like Coinbase or um, or Square, uh, Square Cash App or um, just pretty much any exchange like Kraken or um, Binance. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think the question is just who has the private key that gives you the ability to to transact in that crypto asset. So even something like a paper wallet, where you literally print out your own private key is kind of like a self-hosted wallet. The um, wallets that you described are more like wallet software. So something like Samurai or Wasabi or MetaMask, those are wallet software um, applications. Whereas, you know, a self-hosted wallet, I would consider even being like a paper wallet or something where you've printed out or have your private key in, you know, a hard copy. And then can you just walk me through what a transaction looks like between, for instance, two self-hosted wallets versus two hosted wallets, and then maybe like, you know, a mixture, uh, you know, between a self-hosted wallet and a hosted wallet. Um, and then even like I I know that you guys are coming out with some materials in which you even compare some of these transactions to credit card transactions. So I'm curious to, you know, just hear you walk through these examples and then how one of these in particular is similar to doing something like a credit card payment. Yeah, I think from the user's perspective, it will feel fairly similar. So when you conduct a transaction using Bitcoin or another digital asset, what you do is you specify two pieces of information. One is the receiving address. So where are you sending the asset to? And the second is what is the amount of the asset that you're going to send, right? So you might send 0.1 Bitcoin to some particular Bitcoin address. The difference is with a self-hosted wallet, you will sign the transaction yourself using your software and you will upload that transaction to the Bitcoin mempool where it can then be mined by a miner, added to the blockchain, and then the transaction will be validated. Whereas with a hosted wallet, really what you're doing is you're giving an instruction to the custodian who has the private key to make that transaction on your behalf. And you're trusting that they will in fact process the transaction the way that you've specified. But of course, they could decide not to or they could get it wrong. So the question is really, are you the user processing the transaction yourself using your private key? Or are you asking somebody else to process that transaction for you? And I think this is very similar. I mean, the analogy that we use when we talk to policymakers, because policymakers like to think in analogies, um, is that a a self-hosted wallet, self-hosted wallet to self-hosted wallet transaction um, is very much like cash. It's like me opening up my wallet, taking a $5 bill and handing it to Jake. He puts it inside his wallet. Um, that's all you need, right? That's you, you don't need any sort of third party to validate that you have the cash, the fact that you have it and hold it in your hand and pass it over. That is the transaction. Um, that's very different than if I go buy a sandwich down the street with my credit card. There are several intermediaries in between that need to Um, have information about the transaction before it's um, verified and completed. And so I think that, um, you know, as we think about the role of cash in society, being able to have transactions with self-hosted wallets is is really important for a lot of different reasons that that we can get into on the show. Well, yeah. Why don't we talk about those now? What are the benefits? Well, privacy is one one benefit. Um, You know, not having, if you look at a China and some of the systems that they built out, they see every single um, minor transaction, um, you know, between every single person, and then they do profiles based on top of that. Um, you know, that's not great. Um, I think there are a lot of businesses, um, you know, who who deal with cash who might be serving customers that don't have access to the traditional financial services system, and so cash is a 
fairly low cost way of of transacting because there aren't fees associated with it. Um, but also, you know, that in, individuals often have need for privacy. They have, might be purchasing something that's embarrassing or purchasing something that they fear um, if other people knew that they would be, you know, maybe in trouble with their job or something like that. Or there might be a healthcare expenditure that, you know, somebody wants to keep private. And so by not having a financial record, you know, that preserves individuals' privacy. Yeah, I, you know, I think this strikes directly at the core principle of what Bitcoin is all about, right? The concept of Bitcoin is that you do not need to rely on a trusted third party in order to have access to basic financial services or to be able to hold a store of value. Um, the, the reason that this is so important is because if we have a world that is completely intermediated, meaning you always have to rely on some third party in order to hold your assets for you or process your transactions for you, that makes you susceptible to all kinds of attacks and other vulnerabilities in that financial system. Um, this is honestly less of an issue in the Western world where we have a pretty good financial system. Our banks are pretty reliable. You know, PayPal works pretty well. But in a lot of other places in the world where the banks aren't so reliable, it's really important for people to be able to have financial autonomy and to be able to hold their own value without relying on part third parties that frankly are not very trustworthy. And the other aspect of this is not having to rely on those intermediaries is simply what makes this technology better than the legacy financial system, right? So if you want to send a transaction to somebody else on the other side of the world, you don't have to wait for the banks to open. You don't have to go through the many different layers of intermediaries that it requires to process a wire transfer, for example. You don't have to pay those transaction fees. All of this depends on people being able to control their own assets and not having to rely on those intermediaries in the process. So this really is the core of what Bitcoin is all about and what we're doing here. And so I actually also, before we continue on discussing this, just want to ask about a few nuanced um, types of transactions involving, you know, hosted slash self-hosted wallets. So what does it mean when we have a company like Coinbase that typically offers hosted transactions? What does it mean when they offer something like a self-hosted wallet? Basically what it means is, they're providing software that a user can use to hold their own assets. And the user will not have to rely on that trusted third party like Coinbase or somebody else in order to process those transactions. So basically what that means is the user is the only one who has the private key that gives them the right to control those assets. Whereas in the hosted wallet context, a third party has the private key. Uh, maybe they exclusively have the private key and the user is simply relying on them, depending on them, trusting them to do what the user says. So the difference is all about who has custody and control of the assets. And then just to also sort of fill out the universe of different types of crypto transactions. So we did mention exchanges um, as being another example of a place where um, you would be transacting in a hosted way. And then what about with OTC brokers, over-the-counter brokers? Would those be considered transactions using a hosted wallet as well? And if so, you know, how do the privacy levels differ with those transactions versus at a hosted wallet, or are they exactly the same? 
Uh, it depends on the broker. You know, there are OTC brokers who do it different ways. Some of them do have hosted wallets. And if you're a client, then you have to actually deposit your, your crypto with them. So they will actually control the private keys and they'll be the ones who, who process the transactions when there is a trade between their customers. Some of them are non-custodial. So all they're doing is matching up buyers and sellers, but then the buyers and sellers are processing the transactions themselves. So it, it depends on how the OTC broker does it. There, there are multiple ways of doing it. Okay. So then let's now draw out the picture of what compliance and or regulation looks like for transactions in the traditional financial world, just so people get a picture of you know what it is that you're saying may come to the crypto space if somebody does a transaction using a third party in the traditional financial world, such as a bank or a stock, stock exchange, what kind of compliance or regulatory activity takes place around those transactions? Yeah, so there are a couple different things, and Jake, you can add to this list. Um, but most importantly, traditional financial services have know your customer requirements. So anyone who has an account with that institution would have to fill out information um, about themselves. Um, also, um, when you're going through between the world of cash and getting into a traditional financial institution, there are reporting requirements and limits um, around how much cash you can move at different times. So the government will have an insight into when you're trying to get in and out. And all of this um, sort of stems from this, um, this the Bank Secrecy Act, which you know, is the purpose of which is to um, give the government insight into what transactions are happening so that they can go oh, you know, pursue illicit um, activity in that space. But Jake might have some additional items to throw in. Uh, that That's exactly right. And I mean, just to give the sort of the legal side of this, um, the institution that the customer is using to process the transaction is known as a regulated financial institution that is required to have an anti-money laundering AML compliance program. And for most purposes, the AML compliance program will include uh, usually five different elements. Uh, and some of it, the customer never sees. So things like having a designated compliance officer that is responsible for compliance that's required, having internal controls to capture any types of fraud or other issues um, is required, uh, having an employee training program is something that these financial institutions have to do to train their employees about identifying red flags that might look like money laundering or terrorist financing. Uh, and then there are, as, as Kristen just said, uh, record keeping, reporting, and customer identification requirements. So these financial institutions have to know who their customers are. They have to collect certain information about the transactions that their customers are trying to conduct. And then sometimes they are required to report details about those transactions to the government. Sometimes that's based on the amount of the transactions. So transactions that exceed a certain US dollar value have to be reported. Sometimes it's about the nature of the transaction, if it's suspicious. So if the institution has some reason to believe the that the transaction uh, is involved in some criminal activity, then they'll have to report that to the government. All right. So now let's turn to these proposed and and perhaps in some of these cases existing regulations um, that could affect self-custody. In May 2019, FinCEN 
the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network here in the U.S., published guidance on how its regulations apply to cryptocurrency businesses. So what did what did those um, guidelines say when it comes to this particular issue? So, and Jake, feel free to jump in as well. Um, so those guidelines um, provided, so there's been two sets of FinCEN guidance, but the guidance from last year did have some positive news for self-hosted wallets in there, which again, they call unhosted wallets. And at the time, um, it said that unhosted wallets don't need to register as money services businesses with FinCEN. So a money services business is um, the entity that um, you know, is it's roughly equivalent to what we refer to as VASPs in the international context, uh, virtual asset service providers. And so, um, so that was an important victory at the time. Um, but we are now starting to see some discussion that could, um, you know, sort of threaten the flow between the two worlds. Um, but that, that to me was the most important part of that guidance. Jake, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, I mean, that's exactly right. You know, um, FinCEN has done a very good job of drawing the line between who regulated money services businesses are and what types of entities in the crypto ecosystem are not actually performing money transmission services such that they're subject to the to the law. Uh, and I, you know, Kristen, that was a great explanation of, of last year's uh, May 2019 guidance. Okay. Yeah. Well, so shortly after that, in June 2019, the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global organization, published its guidance for a risk-based approach to virtual assets and virtual as- asset service providers. So how did this guidance differ from the FinCEN guidance? Um, so I, I wouldn't say it, it necessarily differed. And and it's also important maybe to step back for a second and explain the difference between an entity like FinCEN and one like FATF. Um, FinCEN is a bureau of the U.S. Treasury Department. It's responsible for administering the Bank Secrecy Act, which is the U.S. law governing anti-money laundering compliance. So FinCEN is actually responsible for rulemaking around how regulated financial institutions can comply with that law. Uh, FATF, on the other hand, is not an administrative body. Instead, it's an international standard-setting body that makes recommendations about what its member or uh, member jurisdictions should do with the implementation of their own laws. So basically what FATF does is every year makes recommendations about what a good global industry standard would be for anti-money laundering regulations. And, you know, actually, I think that what the FATF said last June and what FinCEN has been saying is, is really quite consistent, which is that at this point, uh, the law in the U.S. and also in most other jurisdictions does not require any software providers, that is, any developers that are providing self-hosted wallet software to comply with anti-money laundering uh, regulations. The reason for that is because um, the regulations apply, like I said before, to financial institutions that are processing transactions on behalf of their customers, not to individuals who are processing their own transactions. And the FATF agreed with FinCEN that the current laws don't apply in the context of those self-hosted wallets where people are processing their own transactions. However, what the FATF did was they flagged self-hosted wallets as a potential money laundering and terrorist financing risk that might require some further analysis 
by its member jurisdictions to find out whether perhaps the law should be changed so that there should be new regulations for those self-hosted wallets. And that was really one of the first times that we've heard any signals from regulators, either in the U.S. or globally, that there is concern about people who are holding their own digital assets and processing transactions on their own behalf. Yeah, I think the fact that, um, you know, FATF, again, is an on, they meet on a regular basis, they um, issue reports on an ongoing basis and, and guidance. And that um, what was particularly um, troubling was, again, they didn't, they didn't require that um, any of the nations that participate in FATF take these steps, but they suggested that if there is concern that there are a couple of tools that could be considered in order to kind of help prevent concerns um, around illicit finance. And one of those is banning or denying licensing platforms um, if they do allow transactions with self-hosted wallets. Um, Another would be um, introducing volume limits on peer-to-peer transactions in general, um, or mandating that transactions occur with a VASP or other type of financial institution. And so again, they weren't saying, they weren't recommending these, but they were throwing them out there as possibilities. Um, you know, as, as we look at this, it's worrisome that, you know, if, if nations around the world start to um, implement some of these, what we're going to see is a bifurcated world where we have one world of these self-hosted wallets that can only interact with another, but there's no way to get um, any interaction with with hosted wallets. Um, we also worry that because any sort of, um, even just like limits um, will be very difficult to comply with, that what we'll see is that the hosted wallets and the exchanges that are associated with them will just stop allowing um, transactions to self-hosted wallets. So, um, you know, definitely concerning that they're out there. And I think that the compliance with these types of solutions, if they were to be required, would be so difficult that it would, it would, it would really, as I said, create sort of two different worlds. And one other thing, and I'm not sure if this is a suggestion or if this was like a proposal, but I also saw that I believe uh, this FATF guidance either recommended or um, floated the idea that VASPs should get the customer info of any sender of a transaction from a hosted wallet from the customer themselves. Was that something that they said, you know, recommended or just an idea that they were floating? I interpreted that as, as an idea, um, not necessarily a firm recommendation. I mean, at this point, I think that the FATF uh, is, is sticking pretty strictly to the idea that um, regulations apply to VASP to VASP transactions, meaning from one hosted wallet to another hosted wallet. And the idea is that VASP should understand who owns these funds, uh, where they're going, who they're being sent to, where the funds originally came from, what is the purpose of the transaction to the extent that they can determine that so that they can comply with those reporting requirements we were talking about before, right? If there is some suspicious activity so that the VASP can uh, report that to the right authority. Um, sometimes it's hard to get all that information in the crypto world. And there's been some difficulty for the VASPs in figuring out how to gather all of that information that in the traditional financial system is really easy to collect because, you know, it's been done for decades and uh, it's, it's pretty easy to track how funds have moved through regulated financial institutions 
as opposed to the crypto world where funds perhaps were jumping through self-hosted wallets uh, you know, for any number of hops before they arrive at a VASP. So I think that the FATF and its members are all just thinking about how do you address that kind of situation where it's harder to collect the information that typically is very easy to collect in the traditional financial system. But the FATF is very careful about differentiating between ideas that it's exploring versus standards that it is recommending for its members. And I think that's what we saw in the June 2019 12-month review was a lot of ideas and thoughts about what might come in the future and you know, really holding off on making any firm recommendations at this point. One other thing to come out of this was that, you know, the different countries following this guidance can implement the regulate or the standards as they like. And Switzerland has come up with something called the Swiss rule. How does the Swiss rule differ from how most countries are implementing the FATF guidelines? Yeah, so I'll um, not to hog the the limelight here, but I'll, I'll take the first shot at that. Um, like I said, in general, AML regulations only apply to transactions between regulated financial institutions. The Swiss rule goes further than that. The Swiss rule basically says we are going to require financial institutions not only to collect information about transactions between uh, you know customers' accounts at at regulated institutions but also customers' transactions with self-hosted wallets. So what the rule says is, in order for a financial institution to allow a withdrawal of crypto to a self-hosted wallet or to allow a deposit of crypto from a self-hosted wallet, the institution must verify the beneficial owner of the self-hosted wallet. And to, to sort of step out of the legalese and tell you what that really means, what it means is if I am a customer of one of those financial institutions and I want to send some Bitcoin from my account at an exchange to my ledger hardware wallet, I would have to prove to the exchange that I am actually the owner of the ledger hardware wallet that I want to withdraw those assets to. And the problem is it's really hard to prove that my ledger hardware wallet belongs to me, right? What am I going to do? Show a receipt that I purchased it? send a picture showing that it's still in my possession. I didn't give it to somebody else. So this has become a very complex and difficult standard to meet. And the result of that is, in essence, at least as I understand it, Swiss financial institutions have simply refused to allow any transactions with self-hosted wallets because it is just too complicated to figure out how to comply with that rule. So at this point, we have this bifurcated market that Kristen mentioned in Switzerland where you have some crypto on exchanges or with custodians in this regulated financial institution world, and that crypto can move around between those financial institutions, but it can never move off of that walled garden into a self-hosted wallet. And similarly, any crypto that is in sort of the self-hosted world, right, that people have self-custody of, that they're moving around through their own transactions on the blockchain, they can never get those assets into the financial institution world. Yeah, that um, <laughs> uh, somehow seems untenable to me, but um, I'm not a regulator. One thing I wanted to ask was, you know, Switzerland is just one place. So if this were to be implemented there, would it really have a ripple effect or would it simply affect people who use 
um, some of the exchanges or wallets uh, in Switzerland? Well, I'm worried that it could have a ripple effect. I, I worry that when you have one nation do something, um, then um, you know other countries will look around and say, oh, they're being tougher on illicit finance than we are. And there's sort of a race to make sure that regulations are are strong enough and meeting the strongest standards. And and the reason that there is such concern about unhosted wallets is, um, you know, for, for for those who understand this space, but for policymakers who might be less um, less schooled on the inner workings of cryptocurrency, you know, the, the the major concern is that today, you know, cash is obviously the the method of choice for criminals, whether it's for terrorist financing or for anti-money laundering, that 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 is like the, the the preferred methodology. But if I want to finance some terrorists on the other side of the world with cash, I actually have to physically deliver that cash. I have to put it in a bunch of suitcases and get on an airplane. And at some point along the way, um, you know, like there's a good chance I might get caught with all of that. But the concern that these these regulators and policymakers have is that with self-hosted wallets, you can do very large amounts of volume um, almost instantaneously. And so um, that that is is something that they're trying to wrap their heads around and figure out what to do. Um, you know, sort of the irony is that the way that we track down these guys today is using, um, you know, these, there are these specialized firms that do forensic analysis of the blockchains. And because we have information about some of the wallet addresses and don't have information about some of them, we're still able to piece together, um, you know, we, not me, but these firms are able to piece together and in many times identify who has that information. But the irony is that if we get to this bifurcated world, we'll have no information about the world of self-hosted wallets while having perfect information about the world of hosted wallets. And so, the the cure that these policymakers are coming up with by that results in this split world is actually going to make the the it more difficult to find the bad guys and not um, um, and not stop it. And so, you know, we we're hopeful that by doing some education around this, that we'll be able to prevent some of these ideas from taking off in the U.S. Um, and not make the Swiss rule the standard that we will see globally. Yeah, and. You know, I, it actually just occurred to me as well that this also has implications for security because if people then feel that they need to keep the coins they've purchased on an exchange at the exchange and can't pull them over to their own self-hosted wallets, um, then, uh, you know, a lot of people's coins will be subject to any hacks at those exchanges. Whereas, you know, right now you can transact and, um, you know, get a good price on an exchange, but then, uh, bring your money back to your own hardware or your own um, software wallet. Um, all right. So in a moment, we're going to talk about some of the other regulations that could come to the self-custody area and um, restrict people's ability to host their own wallets. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card. 
which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Jake Shervinsky and Kristen Smith. So there is actually also another regulation that may come specifically to the U.S. because FinCEN is looking at adopting a rule that would lower the threshold for transactions that have data collected on them by financial institutions for the Bank Secrecy Act from $3,000 down to $250. What do you think of this idea? Do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea? And you know, what, why do they want to do this? So we, we think this is a bad idea. Um, they want to do this. Um, and um, this is something that we understand is, is a priority for the Treasury Department, um, you know, not, not just FinCEN, who is, is the direct regulator. But um, they, they, we think this is a bad idea. Um, the, it's particularly bad for crypto because this proposed rule um, applies to all financial institutions that are out there. So for banks that already have a program in place for this, it's fairly easy for them um, because they just sort of change a number um, and it will increase the volume of reports, um, but but it's, it's easier for them to comply. But for crypto companies that don't yet have a working travel rule solution in place, um, this is going to be hugely problematic. Um, and it's not going to apply to just international transactions, um, like the rule suggests, but in practice could very well have to comply, um, or it would very well apply to all transactions because um, the way that that kind of current iterations of the travel rule solution um, that are in play, the the, there's no way to sort of verify where a wallet is um, um, in any sort of reliable way. So if it were to be applied, it would have to be blanketly applied. And so this is this is a big step for crypto. Um, the you know the VASPs in the U.S. have been working together to try to figure out a solution, but this this makes it incredibly um, you know much more burdensome. I, I agree with Kristen, and I think on principle. The idea of reducing the reporting threshold uh, is directionally incorrect. Right, the the direction that you're moving by saying more will be reported to the government is expanding the amount of surveillance that is conducted and reducing the privacy of people who are using the financial system. And I think in the wake of the FinCEN files, uh, you know, where we learned that basically the reports that are already being submitted to the government are not being used particularly well. And that's for reports of many millions of dollars in value of transactions or even billions of dollars in transactions. To say that the solution to this problem is for the government to collect even more information about transactions in the $250 range just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think that what we should be focusing on, to the extent that that we believe that this um, surveillance system where financial institutions are deputized basically as actors of law enforcement to provide information to law enforcement so that they can root out criminal activity, the, the, the solution to that is to improve the government's use of the information that it is already receiving, not to just expand the dragnet and collect more information. So I think directionally, it's just incorrect to think about reducing the transaction thresholds. Coin Center did write up a comment in response to this proposal, and they pointed out that when the Bank Secrecy Act was implemented in 1971, $3,000 back then would be the equivalent of $20,000 today. 
And that the um, equivalent of $250 today would have been $40 back then. So that just gives people a perspective on, um, you know, what Jake was talking about when he says like directionally, it's, uh, you know, not maybe going in the same direction as originally intended. Um, So, you know, I just want to get the lay of the land here. How likely is it that you think these regulators, and I understand, you know, we're talking about, you know, U.S. and some of these are international and stuff, but right now, which way is the um, wind blowing? Do you think it's likely that these regulations will be implemented or do you feel like regulators kind of understand what the downsides are? I mean, I think a lot of it's going to depend, um, at least in the U.S., on who we have leading the Treasury Department in a Biden administration. And we've seen um, various names thrown about. Um, I think that it's going to be not just the secretary, but the undersecretary um, who deals with um, issues of terrorist financing um, um, and illicit finance. Um, I think that that um, a lot of it will depend on those personalities. But the, you know, FinCEN has issued this NPRM uh, notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, you know, there are lots of ways for that to slow down um, and um, not necessarily be like come become an actual rule. But I think it's great that Coin Center was so quick. Peter is like amazing at pumping out these letters um, to FinCEN. Um, you know, we're working on a response at the Blockchain Association that, you know, provides some data that is, shows how burdensome this rule would be towards crypto. Um, um, but I also think importantly, you know, when you do these proposed rules, the regulatory agency is required to do a cost benefit analysis. And if you look at the cost benefit analysis that FinCEN provides in the rule, it shows the, the cost to banks, which are just one category of financial institution that already have this infrastructure in place. It doesn't take into account sort of the non-bank financial institutions, but more importantly, it doesn't take into account individuals that are um, going to have all of their um, information about their small transactions reported, um, you know, to government officials. And so, you know, we have um, been in discussions and are working on getting a grassroots website up and running. And um, we don't have that quite yet, but we should have that in time for um, individuals who want to comment on it from, you know, sort of a a personal privacy um, and liberty standpoint. You know, all else being equal, the trend is toward more regulation, not less. So I think if we do nothing, then we should expect there to be more regulation in any number of different ways. It might be reducing transaction limits for currently regulated financial institutions. It could be expanding the definition of those regulated financial institutions so that more folks are captured uh, under the AML compliance obligations. Um, It could be expanding what the regulated financial institutions are required to do. For example, the Swiss rule, where you're adding a new obligation to do some due diligence or compliance around transactions with self-hosted wallets. I think all of this is on the table. I do not think it's inevitable. And I think that there is a lot of room for us to make very strong policy arguments why these regulations don't bear out the cost-benefit analysis, why the cost is much higher than the benefit. And you know, going back to the FinCEN files, I think what we've what we've learned from that is collecting more information is not necessarily a benefit to law enforcement. And also, there are many ways for law enforcement to do their jobs to detect and prevent criminal activity without 
doing dragnet financial surveillance. And on the other side, I think what we see is that the cost to individual privacy, to the usefulness of crypto networks uh, is, is really substantial uh, if you limit the ability of people to use these systems the way that they're intended, which is to say to remove intermediaries and trusted third parties from the ability to, to conduct financial transactions. So I think that it's, it's incumbent on us in industry and those of us who care about this issue to make those arguments why this matters to us. Um, and, you know, I think this is, you know, this is a project for not just the next few months, but the next few years and maybe the next decade. I do think that we're entering sort of the second phase of the crypto wars the first part of which we mostly won in the 1990s around encryption on the internet, although we are still sort of relitigating that battle now um, in various ways. I think that, you know, how that argument applies to financial privacy in the crypto ecosystem is sort of the next battle that, uh, that we're going to have to fight for a long time to come. And when you said earlier that um, you felt like there were other ways that regulators could achieve these goals without doing this kind of dragnet surveillance. What are some ideas that you have? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think that we need to have an open dialogue with law enforcement about what they need to do their jobs. But I mean, just as an example, we had this whole argument when it came to encryption in the 1990s, and there was a, a fairly strong argument that allowing criminals to use the internet to organize was going to increase the amount of illicit activity that we saw in the world. But the solution to that was not to ban the internet. It was to empower law enforcement with modern tools so that they could still detect and prevent criminal activity that used new technology. And this is frankly not a new story, right? Criminals are always the first adopters of new technology. And then law enforcement has to figure out how to address criminals' use of that new technology. And so I think, you know, one good example is how the, um, how global law enforcement has addressed darknet markets, for example. And in large part, they aren't taking down darknet markets by doing massive financial surveillance and collecting information from financial institutions. They're doing good old fashioned police work. They're finding out who the people are who are using these technologies for illicit purposes. They're doing undercover work. They're intercepting drugs that are being sent through the mail. You know, they're doing that kind of good old fashioned work to, to figure out how to stop crime using new technology. And I think we need to empower law enforcement to do even more uh, in that sense, rather than sacrificing financial privacy in the name of what sounds like it might be helpful, but in truth seems like isn't that helpful at all. And I also wanted to put into perspective the level of crime or money laundering that we're seeing in crypto versus the traditional financial system. Can you kind of make a comparison there to, um, you know, the levels of activity in terms of criminal activity, and then also maybe make a comparison in terms of the response from the regulators? Uh, all of the, sorry, Kristen. I'll, no, go, just, go ahead, Dick. Um, all of the data that we have now suggests that there is very little illicit activity using crypto. So there have been a couple of, of reports that have been done by folks with access to really good data. So Chainalysis, for example, said that uh, in their most recent annual report, I think only 1.1% of all crypto transactions involved illicit activity. There was also a report commissioned by the folks behind Zcash 
through the Rand Corporation, which found, I think, less than 1% of transactions in privacy coins like Monero and Zcash involved illicit activity. Um, in comparison, criminals really do prefer using U.S. dollars in cash for their criminal activity. That is still the um, monetary instrument of choice. And so when we talk about these concerns that regulators have, it really is an inchoate fear about some future hypothetical world where criminals have decided to start using crypto for illicit purposes in a way that they absolutely are not today. So it's it's a fear about a possible future, not a concern about what's happening right now in the world. In terms of what is happening right now, I believe OTC brokers are apparently the biggest money laundering risk in crypto. Why is that? And how do you think that risk can be mitigated? Well, I would say it depends on the type of OTC broker. I think most of them that we see here in the United States are regulated um, uh, and they do KYC and they are, um, you know, they're they're very good actors. But I think the problem we see um, is overseas. There are OTC desks that facilitate, you know, large transactions without having any information. And that that is probably one of the biggest holes um, you know, in the system. And then if we could get those types of actors to come in and do, you know, KYC and have an AML program, that that would, that would be the source of it. It's, it's not, um, you know, the companies here, uh, OTC desks here in the US, but, but more, over, more, more overseas. I completely agree. And I think this is the mission of the US government right now is to bring overseas entities into compliance with anti-money laundering obligations. And, you know, one thing that kicked off this discussion recently was the U.S. government's enforcement action against BitMEX, which really had to do with BitMEX serving U.S. customers, but not complying with the Bank Secrecy Act and performing uh, KYC, customer due diligence, on its customers. And so I think what we're seeing from regulators is a focus on bringing those offshore entities into compliance. Uh, and I, you know, I think we're, we're seeing this across the board where offshore exchanges, and I'm sure this is true for OTC brokers as well, who for a long time offered no KYC services are, are now starting to require KYC for all of their customers. And I think that trend uh, will definitely continue as we go forward. I also wanted to draw out the, um, I guess, how how the different... Um, political situations in different geographies can also influence one's perspective on the value of peer-to-peer transactions. And I know that there are particular countries where the value of that is actually pretty salient right now. Um, you know, Hong Kong might be an example, or Venezuela, um, China. Can you just walk me through what you know the benefit is of having peer-to-peer crypto transactions possible in places like those? Yeah, well, I think in Hong Kong, um, with everything that's been going on there um, in the past year and the protests, you know, if if you bought a Metro card with the the system, you know, they would be able to know that you were a part of those protests and you don't want the, the government knowing that. And so to be able to have a digital cash-like option to engage in political activity. Um, you know, that that's one example. But I know Jake has a lot of thoughts on this because we talked about this before. So let him. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, and we've mentioned a few times already in this discussion that some of these concerns 
are much greater outside of what we think of as liberal democracies in the developed world. It's really where people fear their government because their government is authoritarian. And their fear of censorship is because they believe that their government will not comply with the rule of law and will not respect their basic human rights in um, places like Venezuela, for example. And, you know, look, we're not seeing, I think, a whole lot of use of crypto networks in Venezuela right now. But in places like that, you can imagine the argument for financial privacy and self-custody being much more important, where if you are the opposition party and you're making legal arguments against the ruling party, and the ruling party's response to that is to deplatform you or to cut you off from access to the financial system so that they can defeat you not through you know, a democratic election, but rather through wielding their power to crush the opposition. That's where these technologies really matter. And so this is a geopolitical question. And I think something that, that the U.S. government will have to consider as it thinks about its policy toward crypto broadly is how is crypto a geopolitical tool for freedom and against oppression in, in places where governments are not respecting the rights of individuals to speak freely, to think freely, and to, you know, fight for their own um, uh, voice in, in politics. So something super interesting that acting controller of the currency, Brian Brooks, said when he came on Unchained was I asked him about privacy and he said, look, if you're a dissident in a country like Cuba or if you live in Venezuela, you'll care more about financial privacy. And then he said, quote, In the U.S., where we are legitimately a target of terrorism every day, it feels a little bit different. Yes, there are some things we would probably rather buy privately, but as a society, we seem to have made the judgment that the threat of people using our financial system for illegal, even terrorism purposes, is sufficiently tangible that we need to protect against that and thus give up some of our privacy in favor of that. Do you agree that this is how Americans should feel? And do you also think that this then justifies the U.S. having more regulations and less privacy? Well, I mean, I think that's what makes this a policy issue and something that needs to have the debate of elected officials as opposed to just regulators. But, you know, I think I think, you know, Brian Brooks is is right. There has been a trade off that has been made here. And the problem that policymakers have is once they tend to get going in a direction, it's very hard to reverse that. And so I think that, um, I think that, yes, somewhere along the line, we realized we decided to hand over our financial privacy. And I think that we're now seeing with this FinCEN rulemaking that that's only um, going to increase. And it's very, nobody wants to be, you know, the congressman that says, you know, Hey, well, we've got enough, and um, if we if we don't do more, then um, you know people will you know there will be more threats and more people will be hurt. I mean, and you know this might be a politically unpopular thing to say, but I feel like it's sort of with coronavirus, right? Like, yes, if everyone stayed inside their house all day for six months, um, it w- would all disappear. But at the same time, there would be um, you know negative consequences of that, right? Like no one would go to the gym. There would be mental health problems. There would be suicides as a result of that. So all of these decisions that are made are policy trade offs. Like that's what makes policy interesting, right? You have you have different interests that needs to be to be balanced. And um, what I worry is that 
the voice of the individual in all of this has just kind of taken it to be, you know, a foregone conclusion that this is how it has to be and that we have to give up these things. But I think that now, I mean, I, th I think crypto entering in this space is an opportunity to revisit these questions and to educate individual users. Um, you know, at the Blockchain Association, we we represent companies, right? But I think there are a lot of individuals who should also care about these decisions. And, um, you know, I think that this is something that I know Jake and I hope we can get more people involved in and, and talking about because we, we should be having um, a much more open debate about this topic. Uh, you know, I think people care very deeply about privacy here, actually. And I think that, yes, it's a trade-off, and it's important to remember this isn't all or nothing, right? I don't think anyone is advocating that every single financial transaction should be anonymous, and no one should ever be able to know anyone who spends anything anywhere, right? That's, that's um, sort of an extreme view uh, that no one is advocating for. I think what we advocate for is having the option to have anonymous transactions where it is appropriate. There are some things that we simply do not want to be known by everybody in the world, right? Just imagine a world where every single person, all of your neighbors and friends and family and business associates knows every single dollar that you spend everywhere and on what at all times. But that is not a world that we want. And that's why we have cash. And that, I think, is why, as, uh, as a policy matter, we are very committed to having cash. We're not trying to move to a cashless society. And the question is, why would you treat physical cash, paper cash that we're used to, any different from digital cash? Right? It doesn't mean that every single transaction will be done in digital cash, but what it means is that there should be an option. Um, but also, as I said, I, I think that people do care very deeply about privacy here, and we see that in the form of new privacy laws, like the recent law passed in California, that does give people much more control over personal information that is collected by the businesses that they patronize. And so I do think that this is, you know, this is an issue that is going to get worked out um, for a very long time. But I, I, I'm imagining that candidates for elected office will have to be responsive to the interests of their constituency. And people are very uh, concerned about protecting their privacy. Last month, the DOJ's cryptocurrency enforcement framework labeled anonymous transactions, quote, as a high-risk activity indicative of possible criminal conduct. What do you think that statement means for the future of privacy coins such as Monero and Zcash? I mean, I think it's a challenge for them, right? Um, and, you know, we, we work very closely with the Zcash guys, and I think they've been very thoughtful um, in their approach, and we're continuing to figure out the right way. But, I mean, I think as we saw yesterday, Shapeshift delisted Zcash. Um, having having that report out there is, is problematic because um, you know that is a, sort of an identifiable step that exchanges could choose to take, and I think that that is um, a huge step backwards towards maintaining financial privacy and and something that um, I think is going to have to to come to a head in a larger public policy debate um, in order to correct that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, Laura, you had Jesse Liu on to talk about the enforcement framework, and it was a fantastic conversation. So I would highly recommend everyone um, listen to that to, to get more context for what the enforcement framework means. Yeah, and I, just so people know, she was the former district attorney for Washington, D.C. 
Yes, and she was a nominee to be Undersecretary uh, of Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Crimes. So she knows more than anybody about this subject. Um, and I, I uh, would echo what she said, um, which is the enforcement framework was a clear message from the Department of Justice that they have a fundamental concern with anonymity enhancing cryptocurrencies. And when they when they talked about exchanges offering anonymity enhancing services or, or assets, what they said was that the um, the financial institutions should consider whether it is possible to comply with their anti-money laundering obligations while offering those cryptocurrencies. Not, you know, how they can best mitigate risk or something like that. They, they literally said whether it is possible. And to translate that into sort of DC speak, what lies behind that reading between the lines is they, they don't think that it is possible. And it was a message, I think, to financial institutions, to exchanges and custodians that they should not be offering those assets. And I think that's what motivated Shapeshift, which is run by a CEO, Eric Voorhees, who is, I think, very deeply committed as a personal matter to financial privacy to decide that it was just too risky to, to offer those assets. So I think that this is, um, this is an issue that is uh, going to be debated um, for quite a while. Yeah, I, f- I have to say I find that surprising simply because both of those cryptocurrencies do come with viewing keys that could be used to show regulators the um, particulars of those transactions, um, which means that they sort of have something built in to uh, comply with existing regulations. But um, apparently that's not enough. Um, so we did touch briefly on the upcoming administration, but I want to dive into it a little bit more. Gary Gensler, this uh, former CFTC chairman, has been tapped to head up the financial policy transition team for the upcoming Biden administration. And I wondered if you consider that a positive development for crypto. And you did mention some of the key appointments that you were looking at. And I wondered if there were any names of like who would be on your wish list. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that I think that having Gary Gensler is is positive. Um, he, you know, teaches a course at MIT on blockchain and crypto and has a very good understanding um, of how the technology works. And I think that having him in the mix is comforting. Um, if you look down the list, um, sort of without naming names, um, there are some additional advisors on that list. Um, when I saw that uh when I saw that upon its release, I, I was a little bit worried that um, some of those might not um, be in the best interest of crypto. But I think having Gary at the top is good. Um, you know, I think for for Treasury Secretary, that's really going to set the tone, and then all of the undersecretaries were sort of will stem from who the Treasury Secretary is. And um, I think there are several names in the mix: um, Lael Brainer, Janet Yellen. Um, uh, who, you know, either of them, I think, would be, you know, thoughtful on these issues. Um, I don't think they have a, a major beef against crypto, um, but I also don't think they're the biggest champions either. Um, I have, you know, I've been trying to get Glenn Hutchins on the list. I don't know if Glenn Hutchins knows this, but I think he would make an amazing Treasury Secretary who um, really understands um this space. Um, I think Roger Ferguson um, is, I've heard his name on that list. I think he would be um, a thoughtful choice. He's the current um, CEO of TIAA Craft. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, there, there's nobody on the list right now that I consider to be um, an immediate threat, um, especially compared to the current Treasury Secretary. I mean, he's been fairly vocal um, um, that he doesn't see much value in cryptocurrencies. So I think, um, 
you know, the bar is fairly like low right now and we need to just get somebody better than that. But, um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, it, when somebody shows up and they, um, you know, are surrounded sort of by the career staff that have dealt with these issues, they may decide to take on um, sort of in this next level of regulation as a priority. So, so we're not um, out of the woods yet, but I think that that's why it's important that um, we be having this conversation within our crypto community and, you know, get people mobilized and involved and, um, you know, weighing in with regulators when there's opportunity and, and talking to members of Congress and letting them know that, that financial privacy is important and that we don't want the government to go too far. And speaking of Congress, how does the makeup for the next Congress look in terms of this issue? Do you think that it will be the type of Congress that wants more surveillance or that will be supportive of privacy? Um, I think that it'll, I think, I don't think Congress will do too much on this. Um, I do think that the House is, um, you know, going to be controlled by Democrats. They tend to be in favor of more regulation um, and the makeup of the House Financial Services Committee has traditionally pushed for more. Um, in the Senate, the current chair, um, Mike Crapo, Senator Crapo um, of the Senate Banking Committee, he um, ha- is a huge privacy advocate. Now, um, he is no longer going to chair the committee because he's going to move to the Senate Finance Committee. Um, and so likely we'll have Pat Toomey. Um, but I think I think the the leadership on the Senate Banking Committee, as as, as a general matter, tends to value privacy, and so, um, you know, that actually might be, um, you know, sort of two good sides of the coin that could lead to a good policy um, in the middle. I mean, what you don't want is just sort of one opinion coming in and not having the debate and determining what the trade offs should be. Um, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that that is something that's going to move quickly. Now, what could change is if there is some you know, horrible incident, and we find out that Bitcoin is the was the financing behind it, um, you know, then, then, you know, that could change very quickly. And so um, I think that's why, you know, we want to make sure we have our ducks in a row to have that debate. Um, it's one of the reasons why the Blockchain Association this month is putting out a report on this topic. Um, and we, we want to be ready to go, because that could change pretty quickly under the right circumstances. And I also wanted to ask about something that um, maybe, you know, isn't in any of these proposals at the moment, but uh, certainly is out there as an idea. Um, Could there be regulations that come for developers who write code for self-hosted wallets or for other privacy-preserving crypto products, you know, that that where they might be targeted, even if they're not um, actually, you know, uh, in charge of people's uh, private keys? So I mean, that, that, sorry, go ahead, Jake. Uh, I was just going to say that would surprise me uh, a lot for a couple reasons. The first is right now there are no laws that I think could be construed as applying to the developer of software who is not actually taking custody of someone else's assets. And so in order for something like that to happen, you wouldn't just need you know new FinCEN guidance or even formal rulemaking. You would actually need Congress to pass a new law extending regulation to the developer of of open source software. I think it's very hard to imagine that happening for political reasons. I I think it would be um, strongly opposed and, you know, very broadly opposed because there really aren't laws restricting the development of open source software in any context, let alone in, in the financial context. I also think that there would be a pretty strong constitutional challenge if there was an attempt to craft some law 
that prevents folks from simply writing software that they themselves are not using or helping others to use. Um, and, you know, I know this is an issue that, that Coin Center works on a lot, um, and in particular, Peter Van Valkenburg, who dives into the First Amendment right to freedom of speech of developers. And I think that, it, you know, if there was an attempt to pass a law like that, there would very quickly be any number of constitutional challenges. Uh, and so I don't expect anything like that. Even on the administrative level, FinCEN has been, as I said before, very careful to draw the line between service providers who are actually taking custody of assets belonging to others and then providing some service, whether that is money transmission, right, sending those assets to some other person or location, or mixing services, right, providing some level of anonymity for future transactions. Uh, FinCEN has really distinguished between those service providers and mere software providers who FinCEN says are not subject to the Bank Secrecy Act. And it would, it would really shock me if that changed. I do think, though, we could see the idea floated in Congress. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of crazy bills that are introduced that don't go very far. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, a Brad Sherman or somebody like that you know, comes in and, and throws something in the hopper, um, you know, to, to get that idea out there. But yeah, I agree with Jake. I think that there would be a challenge. And if something like that happens, you know, we would, we would fight that tooth and nail, obviously. That would be a major, major problem for not just crypto, but, you know, for the entire internet. Yeah. And as a reminder for people, Brad Sherman was the congressman who proposed, I think, banning Bitcoin and crypto, other cryptocurrencies. So, um, <laughs> just to jog your memory. Um, and then the last thing I want to ask about was, so, you know, everything we've been talking about is how these proposed rules affect, you know, these wallets. But the fact is that wallets can contain other things besides money, for instance, with, you know, uh, Filecoin or with uh, uh, this whole NFT trend, they could contain documents or they could contain art. So how could these potential rules affect those types of situ situations? Yeah, no, I mean, I think if there are, if, if, if policymakers decide that self-hosted wallets are untenable and that there need to be limits um, in transaction in transacting with unhosted wallets, that is not, um, you know, that's not just money. If you think of your wallet today, you know, for those who actually still have wallets, um, you, you may keep your cash in there, but you might also keep your social security card in there. You might keep a picture of a family member. Um, you might keep your identification in there. Um, similar with a safe, you could have some valuable items, some jewelry, um, some things of that items, uh, that nature, you know, self-hosted wallets, um, you know, can host many different kinds of crypto-based assets. Um, and, um, you know, that if, if um, you know, those types of limits were to be put in place, they could very well extend to, um, you know, wallets that host, you know, other types of assets. And so it would really have, I think, a ripple effect um, across all of, of the crypto industry. Um, and that is, um, I think there's so much potential with, Web 3.0 applications um, of cryptocurrency that we're just starting to see, like such as Filecoin and others, that that we wouldn't want to cut off this whole um, part of innovation that 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 again is in the early stages. That that um, you know, in an effort to go after terrorist financing. 
Yeah, and this is actually one of the two subjects of FinCEN's notice of public rulemaking. So we've talked a lot about lowering the reporting uh, transaction threshold down to $250. That's one aspect. The other is clarifying the definition of money, basically, under the funds travel rule. So what types of transactions uh, are subject to these reporting requirements? And basically, the notice of public rulemaking proposes clarifying that all, quote unquote, convertible virtual currencies, CVCs, which is FinCEN's word for cryptocurrencies, that all transactions in CVCs are subject to to the Bank Secrecy Act. Um, I think in general, that makes sense. It's sort of what we've all assumed anyway, that Bitcoin and Ether and, you know, pick your crypto, that all of them are subject to, to those requirements. I think where there might be some dispute is, like you said, Laura, when you get outside the scope of these convertible virtual currencies, these fungible assets to non-fungible assets where there's a token representing art or something like that. I think then there might be uh, an argument that the traditional rules for uh, anti-money laundering compliance don't apply. But I don't think we've really uh, dug in from a legal perspective to that issue quite yet. All right. Well, we will see where all of this goes. Um, when is When are kind of like the next big developments that you're looking for um, when it comes to, you know, whether or not this is going to go in the direction you would like or not? Well, I think seeing what happens as the next step with the FinCEN um, notice of proposed rulemaking and, um, you know, whether they extend it um, and move forward with that. Um, I also think figuring out who the Treasury Secretary nominee is and who um, some of the other people at Treasury will ultimately be, which we'll be finding out in sort of the weeks and months ahead. Um, and then I think as uh, one we're, we're keeping an eye out on is FATF is expected to do um, another report in June, and this may or may not be addressed in that, but we'll definitely be keeping an eye out to see if this um, uh, is something that they continue to to have as a, as a matter of discussion. Okay, well, where can people learn about, learn more about each of you and about this topic? Um, well, for the Blockchain Association, you can follow us at um, Blockchain ASSN on Twitter, um, or you can go to the blockchainassociation.org. We have a public policy page that talks about all of our issues, um, including um, this, uh, including including what we've been speaking about today, and um, that will have a link uh, to our report on self-hosted wallets that we're releasing in November. Uh, yeah, and for me, I would say just follow me on Twitter. It's at Jay Chervinsky, J-C-H-E-R-V-I-N-S-K-Y. Um, I try to keep folks updated on you know the most important issues uh, around self-custody and privacy, and especially uh, as enforcement actions roll out from uh, the Department of Justice and uh, elsewhere in the U.S. government. I, I try to keep folks updated on that. And then when there are opportunities to provide public comments, uh, like in the case of FinCEN's Notice for Public Rulemaking. Um, I'll try to keep folks updated about those opportunities as well. Okay, great. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jake and Kristen, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the shows on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Bossy Baker, Shashank, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.